Join us as we gather around the hedge, where we dig into technology, business, and culture with the finest minds in computer networking. Well, hello, Tom. I said before, something is up with your curtains. What'd you do? <laughs> I didn't change anything. You didn't change anything. <laughs> I'm just maybe totally, you changed. Maybe I maybe I just can't see anymore. And <laughs> amazingly, we have Yvonne with us today and her Hello. flowers. <laughs> I do have flowers. I was explaining to this group before we started recording that part of my pandemic life now is every time I go to the grocery and I do my online ordering, I throw a a bunch of uh, of cut flowers in there, and so. Part of my surviving the pandemic is that now I have fresh flowers and they're pretty and they make me happy. And so I do it. It's 15 bucks every two weeks. It's a small price to pay. The one thing that's missing, however, is your bless your heart sign. Now you've got to get the bless your heart sign back it's, up. It's here. It was, I have a sign that says bless your heart on it. It was given to me by a coworker a few years ago. And so I will dig that out when I get the office uh, renovations done and we will hang it in a prominent spot. Thank you, because I can't live without your bless bless your heart side. <laughs> it's always there, even if it's, you can't see it. It's right. It's awesome. All right. And today joining us is Jacqueline Adams, who is going to talk to us about her background and her, and we're going to talk about the history or the future of work. See, I said that backwards. We're going to talk about the future of work. And it's going to be awesome because I don't know what the future holds, but hey, we're going to pull out our crystal ball and our magic eight ball and goof off. So hi, Jacqueline. How are you? Hey, everyone. I'm well. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So where are you physically, Jacqueline? I am in Charlotte, North Carolina. I moved here right before the quarantine hit. All right. Cool. Cool. Well, Tom is not too far away. I'm actually only about three hours from you. And Yvonne is actually not too far away either. Well, I don't know. Tom may consider himself far away now. He's in Austin, aren't you, Tom? Yeah. Texas is close to everything. (laughs) Keep telling yourself that, man. (laughs) <laughs> or, or it means, or it's close to nothing. We're not, we're not really sure which it is, but <laughs> metaphysically, it could be either. So, Jacqueline, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about your background, how you came to where you are, because uh, I think that was a really cool story. Thank you, Russ. So, I went to college at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio, and got my degree in computer engineering. And then soon afterwards, I signed up for Peace Corps and taught high school math in Swahili um, in a rural Tanzanian village for two years. So can you Uh, still speak Swahili? Could you talk to us? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not as fluent as I used to be, but I did go back to Kenya four years ago. And so I can barter at the marketplace like nobody's business. I can chew the fat. So yeah, I'm still pretty fluent in Swahili. (laughs) So the rest of this podcast will be in Swahili. (laughs) (laughs) So sorry, Jacqueline, go ahead. (laughs) Now we'll just, we'll just drop Hakuna Matata as our Swahili for the day and leave it at that. Okay. All right. So yeah, when I came back after being gone for two years, It was interesting uh, trying to reintegrate into American culture and trying to figure out what I'm going to do next. And so I decided to combine my love of engineering with my passion for teaching, and I became a corporate trainer of engineers. So helping on board uh, the engineers at Philips uh, who are fixing MRI, CTs, all of that. 
And I did that for about a decade in corporate America for a couple of different places, helping to train their engineers and technicians. And then I branched out on my own and started my own corporate training company. And so I was doing similar work, except for now training the trainers and creating the curriculum. Um, And all of this is based on if you take complicated ideas, whatever technical side, whatever part of engineering, and you really are able to figure out what the core part of this is. And if you can help other people understand those building blocks and build it back up, you're pretty much going to thrive at corporate training, whether you're teaching the classes or creating the curriculums or training the trainers on how to do that. So I have been doing that, but it's been a little bit funky lately because when this pandemic happened, corporations weren't hiring external consultants to come in and help them with their corporate training anymore to make it better. There was all of a sudden such a focus on this virtual onboarding. So my company has shifted in the past six months, and now I'm helping corporations with their stories. Um, They're looking for corporate storytellers, how to put their brand out there in a way that is compelling and tell the stories of their executives and thought leadership pieces. So it's been a huge shift over the last six months and a very interesting ride, but I'm absolutely loving having the privilege of working with these executives and write out their thought leadership. And so you have no training in any of this, right? Your only training is in comp sci, is in programming, coding. Is that correct? (laughs) That's true. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, Peace Corps does give you, during the first three months there, Swahili training, um, and then also how to be a teacher. But but you absolutely nailed it there. This was all learning from on the job. But I think this is a direction that a lot of us are going in. You know, you don't necessarily have that um, structured learning system we all are taking, at least I can't speak for everyone, but I know I've been taking LinkedIn learning classes or master class courses or all these different YouTube tutorials, or I've signed up for um, a blogging um, class. And these are all just side curricular things that I'm doing, but they were extremely helpful in teaching me the skills I needed to do that next task. And so as I listen to Jacqueline tell her story, one of the things that I hear as a a necessary requirement to be able to be flexible in times that are changing like these are is a a huge degree of self-awareness. Like, what do I know? What am I good at? What do I enjoy? And trying to marry that with the market and demand in some way um, to to be able to figure out what what your future is going to be. And that we can't necessarily rely on those old patterns or formal processes. Like it's great to have some foundational education, but that is not not the answer in and of itself. You have to build on that with other building pieces. And I think that self-awareness component is huge. Yvonne, I think you're absolutely right. And what I'd love to build on this to say is it's interesting insofar as we're used to working at a specific job or a specific career, at least the last generation or the generation before did that. They went down that pathway. You did college for that job. And then you did that job or that at least stayed within that market 
for, you could do that for 10, 20, 40, 50 years, whatever that looked like for you. But I think we're seeing more and more that overall we're moving away from that setup. And so you need to be tapped in and you need to be on the pulse of it. It's not, um, it, it, it's not something that's a, a necessarily an option anymore if you want to keep being challenged and keep having a fulfilling uh, career journey. Right. And I, I think what's interesting too that, you, that you've talked about there is that you've gone into the edges of coding, right? You started out in engineering and you went to something that was completely different. And now you've kind of merged the two, which I think is really important in life is to be able to find those edges where things collide and understand how to add value in those edges. Um, I don't know. That just seems to me to be a big thing right now. Oh, yeah. And, and by the way, it's such, it's so interesting because I would have never predicted that I'd end up at this point, but I've always been passionate about engineering and so to get to write compelling articles about engineering and what's happening and what's going on in the cutting edge, as you're saying, of this is such a privilege. And to be honest, I am very grateful that I don't have to worry about coding it and that there are greater minds <laughs> doing that hard work. <laughs> but I still get to be tapped in. What an absolute privilege and honor. And again, I would have never even thought this position existed that two decades ago when I was late at night trying to finish scripting out that code for the assignment for the next day. But yeah, it's cool to have a marrying of the areas that I am very passionate about. So when you, when you talk to people about this, do you ever, do you ever get into the, the aspect of, you know, putting together two things that you're good at and, and sort of, um, you know, charting your own course? Do you give people advice about this or these conversations that you have in your, in your day-to-day oh, work? Absolutely. And I would say there's even, uh, there's a couple of other areas with respect to my passion area that comes into play with, in, because of this. Another area um, that is extremely important to me is making sure, and I think a lot of us are talking about this right now, right? is it's extremely important for corporations to create the kind of culture where we have people of different um, ethnicities, um, you know, not just the cookie cutter, stereotypical engineer, whatever that is. But I am grateful that a big part of the corporate storytelling or the engineering storytelling is making sure that um, resonates through our writing. And so having that component also integrated in the stories we tell and how we express ourselves is another very big passion point for me that I'm very grateful is also integrated into the work that I do. And having, whether it's industry organizations recognize the importance of this or corporations recognize the importance of this and also being called to focus on this by society. It's a, it's a great time for all of this to come together. Do you think, I was just, I was just wondering, do you think, um, one thing that you see a lot, at least for, for networking, um, when you're looking for a job in networking, uh, you see a job description, it has a bunch of things that they want you to be good at. And I, I've gotten accustomed to just ignoring that. Like if I know somebody there, like I, I don't care about the job description, um, because nobody's going to be able to do all that anyway. So, so my question is, do you think that we'll see, uh, employers start to be, I don't know, a little more flexible in how they try to recruit people 
Do you think that that message is getting Absolutely. through? Absolutely. And I'm seeing that. Tre- so as a writer, I need to be tapped into what's trending in articles. And we're already seeing this trending in articles. Um, and the great part about this is I think we're now starting to recognize that there is privilege and bias associated with that. And we're trying to see how we can rectify it. So for example, if you're, de- you're requiring a bachelor's degree, for an entry-level position, people are realizing that that might have been privilege that got you that degree. And it's not the rubber stamp that necessarily it was before or the amount of experience like you're talking about. And so it seems like, yeah, people are just becoming more aware of these things and are more open, maybe specifically during COVID, that we don't have to do the way we do things 10 years ago now. Yeah. So that's interesting because I think that what happens then is you have to stop looking for specific skills in terms of hard skills, what we would call hard skills. I don't really like those terms, but that's what we use in the industry is hard skills and soft skills. And we need to start looking at, do you actually understand the underlying fundamentals? Do you actually understand how to communicate? Are these soft skills actually become more important rather than less in this kind of a situation? And underlying theoretical stuff becomes more important rather than less. And we were joking around about this before, and I called them power skills. I've heard them called elevation skills. I've heard them called a lot of different things. It is interesting because being an engineer and having a lot of friends and colleagues that are engineers, I think it's, I've heard a lot of people complain, you know, like I'm smarter than my manager. Common complaint, right? Uh, But are we able to advocate for our ideas and get other people on board? Because you might be the smartest person in the room, but if you turn everyone off of your ideas, then you're not going to have the backing in order to make it successful. I think Google did a study of their um, staff and what they were looking for was at a a few years ago. And it was like six out of the top 10 skills that they were looking for were what's termed these soft skills. I'm using air quotes here. And so I think recognizing that none of us are working solely in a cube, there is going to be some form of collaboration or some need to express or work together or show other people the value. And that's where these skills really elevate your work to the next level. And I would add that part of that mentality that, you know, hey, I'm smarter than my manager. Well, your manager has a different job than you. A lot of that mentality goes back to this industrial revolution, top down. I have a very specific task to do and all those tasks are coordinated by a manager who has a view of the entire system. I think what we're seeing now, especially in knowledge work, is that the systems are too complex for any one person to be able to have a top down view And so people have their individual skills and responsibilities and capabilities, but the role of the manager is not to know and understand everything under them, but to be able to coordinate and facilitate and elevate the people under them to make them more effective. So it really is a very different job. And so those people, they they may not know all of the technical details, but that's your job. It's not their job. And I think that's where people get crossways sometimes is they have this expectation yeah. that their manager should understand everything that they need to do. And that's that's not the way work is structured 
today, at least not in knowledge worker yeah. fields. Yeah, there's a thing called Keith's Law, which I can't quote Keith's Law, but I can always quote the first corollary, which is that you know your system and you know your system and you know a little bit about what's adjacent to your system on either side. And everything outside of what's adjacent to your system is pop psychology and rumor. And that's pretty much the world we live in now. And, you know, it's sad because you do need somebody who understands the overall architecture. But even understanding that architecture is almost a silo now, which makes it difficult to communicate to all the people inside. And so I think that's part of what you're saying there is that, yeah, I mean, we tend to be like, well, we're going to know more, where our manager is going to know more than us about our system, but they're not. They can't. I mean, it's just a corollary key law. That's just the way it works. And I'm completely guilty of this because I remember back when I was starting to teach corporate America that I thought, oh, we're doing this in my classes and, oh, this is fundamental and this is so important, et cetera, whatever. And I have noticed over the last couple of years especially during this last year. One thing that I'm doing and now that I'm turning even more to networking online is having an awareness not only of my specific jobs and tasks, but of overall what's going on in the industry. And then what you can start to do is you can say, oh, this person at this corporation needs to talk to this industry person over here. And when you start connecting and building and tapping other people in, you create this entire network that overall builds up the system and makes the overall industry better in in very small ways, obviously, but it gets you out of your very narrow-minded, or at least it got me out of my very narrow-minded headspace of only focusing on my next project or my current project. I want to go back to the um, telling your own story sort of idea we were talking about. And and I wonder, one of the things that I've seen uh, is I've seen engineers who are very talented, uh, who aren't necessarily good at telling their own story, And, you know, you can tell your story on a blog and things like that, but you also need to tell your story within your organization. You need to be able to say, here's the work that I did. Here's the value that it had. And some many engineers um, that I've met, um, they they struggle with that a little bit. And then what I've noticed is they'll get upset either that they didn't get credit or a lot of them don't even care about credit, that decisions weren't made the way that they wanted them to. And it all came back to you, you didn't tell the story and you left that to your manager who you're smarter than him. And so now he, I got my air quotes up. And so now someone that is, is inferior to you is telling your story. Like you created this whole mess and it was totally unintentional. You, you would have had it some other way. So I guess, so my question is, um, what would you, what would you tell the people who want to start getting better at telling their own stories? Yeah, and, and, and let's also mention the fact that some of us have made the mistake of trying to tell our story and then coming off as showboats. Um, or coming off as braggarts, I've had family and friends tell me on more than one occasion, you know, <laughs> oh, I'm not an engineer like Jacqueline is, or, oh, you're so <laughs> smart over there. <laughs> yeah, you realize after the first or second or millionth time you're told that, oh, I might be turning people off by the way that I am expressing myself right now. We probably need to get better at that. So I, I think part of telling a compelling story is obviously not doing that. It's bringing people in. It's making them excited about what you're excited about. So I think sometimes, and I know I've definitely had to get better about this, it's thinking about what is going to draw them in, not thinking about it from my side, what I want you to know 
there's this and this and this, and you're going to sit there and take it until I'm done telling you about all this. <laughs> From my experience, that doesn't work very well. But it's interesting because I think actually going back to my Peace Corps experience, um, I started writing uh, newspaper articles for my hometown newspaper because I'm from a very small town called, it's literally called Hicksville, Ohio. It does exist. Uh, And I was living in Tanzania and Africa. And, you know, growing up, all my community knew about Africa was AIDS and war and famine. And we had very limited knowledge about a huge continent. And so living over there, I wanted to tell the story of what it was like day in and day out, just being part of the community. And so I I know it seems like that wouldn't carry over into telling the story of engineering execs and people who are on the cutting edge, but it really does if you look at your audience and where they're at and what they want to be tapped into and you've think about how you can get that crucial information to them, then yes, that's, that's what storytelling is. That's what good storytelling is. And so whether you're doing that in your next meeting, making sure that you're framing it in the right way. And sometimes it only takes a couple minutes to make sure that, have I considered what this is like on the other end? Or whether it's for writing a blog, it, it still is true. Uh, and uh, so I remember, uh, Pete, I'm a fan of Pete Lumbus. Sweet. Um, of uh, Cumulus Networks, but I was talking to him one day about presentation, and one of the things that he said is, I begin every talk by thinking to myself, why should the person I'm talking to care what I have to say? And so if, if, if you think about what you're about to say, and first, helping them understand why they should care what you're saying, what it means to them, and why it matters that's super important. And I think a lot of times us uh, engineering types, we get so wrapped up in the details and we get excited about the minutia, but people get lost if we don't help them understand why that minutia matters and we don't filter through what's important and what's unimportant. I think that's difficult sometimes, but really you, you do, just like Jacqueline was saying, think about your audience's perspective, but then also help them understand why they should care. Because we all have a limited amount of energy and a limited amount of of caring we can do in a day. And if we don't compel them to care, they're just not. And that's not really their fault. That's they're human. And that's that's how we all operate. Well, and because we're bombarded by content every day, I can't remember what the specific study was, but I think it said about 2000 advertisements that are flung at us in one form or another. So we've all kind of programmed ourselves to ignore a lot just because who can take all of that in? So you really have to frame it. You're absolutely right, Ron, in that way of how can I frame it so they actually do care. So so backing up a little bit, though, you know, you have this, the business about communication, which is awesome. But then underlying that, you have a basic, it seems like to me, you have a basic concept or thinking skill set around the engineering discipline of coding it's not just building a piece of software. It's actually an underlying idea of how coding works or how computers work or something that's helping you communicate that message. And I think that's something else we miss a lot in our, in our technical world is we get trapped writing CLIs, writing a particular, particular piece of code, automating this, whatever it is. 
but we don't go back and understand what problem's being solved and how it's being solved. We don't take a problem solution mentality to it. So we get trapped in communicating things that nobody cares about because they just don't care about those things. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you. And, and, and again, I think it comes from a good place. I think it comes because we're passionate about solving the problem. Um, that we want to help other people understand what this looks like. So I think it comes from a good place. It just isn't resonating in the way that we would hope it would. So there is an adjustment that needs to occur. So one problem I see is that we often default to measuring technical skills because we know how to, right? It's, It's the whole measurement. If I can measure it, it must be true. How do you measure these types of skills um, and that's something that I don't really understand. I, mean, I know what I do in an interview, and I've been thinking about doing an interviewing training thing for Pearson, um, but I just don't, I mean, it's so hard for me to communicate beyond me knowing how to do it myself. How do you, is there a method? Is this something you teach people? <laughs> I, this It's an interesting question. I've actually never been asked this before. Um, so I, I, I'm kind of intrigued by it. I think there are ways of metrics overall. So for example, for a blogger, you've got number of views on your uh, specific article. You've also got average read time for article. And a lot of people don't realize that they need to check that too. You know, just like similar to a podcast series. How long do people listen through the entire thing or do they stop after a couple of minutes? So um, I I know of those quantitative metrics. I'm curious what other people would have to say on this. This is a new one for me. I find this intriguing. So are you, Russ, are you talking about um, evaluating the skills of another person, like in an interview context? Yeah, well, Um, that's my my general thrust, right? If I'm hiring somebody, how do I do that? And again, I know how I do it. And it's hard for me to explain how I do it. Um, And I would like to do a class on how to do it, but I've got to figure out how to put it in slides. (laughs) How do you put this skill in slides? I'm not entirely certain at this point. But um, on the theory side, asking questions that are truly theoretical, that are, you know, that are a practical application of theory in some way that you wouldn't expect, that's outside the norm, so that somebody has to think through and you can see whether they know the theory or they just know how to solve a problem that's by rote that they've solved a hundred times. On the soft skill side, you know, have somebody explain something that's basic theory and just see how they explain it. Can they convince you? You know, the old adage of give me, give me my pen and you sell the pen back to me. But see, I'm not sure that works in technology fields. I'm not even sure it works in sales fields. I think that's a bit of a, but, you know, nonetheless, are there other things that we could do here? Because if the future of work, which is where we started, involves a lot around, um, you know, soft skills and understanding how to do things and having this flexibility, which is going to depend on your theoretical foundations and underpinnings and having a broader set of skill sets than we're used to. I mean, how do you bring those things out? Just just a thought here, and I'm throwing this out there. Um, when you're talking about measuring this and when you're talking about defining this, I have a slightly, a, a slightly different perspective of it. So for example, if I'm talking to a company that's considering bringing me on board as a brand storyteller, and they're talking about my skills in this. One thing that I'll do during the course of this conversation with a company is ask them, have they mapped out their content strategy besides telling their thought leadership? 
have they considered if they're applying for any industry awards for deserving executives? Are they doing video interviews? Are they doing podcast interviews? Um, and so I think you can show the strategic side of thinking and helping people expand their perspective and being able to communicate this well in, in a way that is hopefully motivational. All of those things point to soft skills without me saying, I'm able to communicate my ideas well and articulate a plan and strategize. If I said all of that, I'd be like every other interviewee that says, I'm a fast learner, I'm a perfectionist, et cetera. We all know right. those answers, but if you can say it through examples, then I think that's so much more compelling. Yeah. Yeah. That, so I, um, that's, a that, that's come up for me recently. How, you know, how do you, how do you tell a story in an interview? I was talking to a friend about this, um, because that's your one and only chance to tell, um, this, this, this person, uh, why you matter, um, and why your experience matters to them. And you, you take a question about something and you turn it into your own story and you just, this is your platform, just use it. Uh, on the on the interview side, um, one of the things that I've done, Russ, and you brought this up already, is um, ask someone to explain something. The, the way that I usually do this is tell me about a protocol, something that that you're that you have expertise in, and it could be anything. It could be S and M P. It could be whatever, like anything. Just t and talk about it as deeply as you can, and, and just tell me about it. And then, as the interviewer, I try to ignore all of the technical stuff. Because I, I I really can I'm, I have my own learning style. I'm not going to learn about this technology from this person, but in my mind, ignore all the technical stuff and look only for the emotional intelligence. Look only for the um, the conceptual skills and the ability to explain a concept. And if if you get past the I need to evaluate their knowledge of X protocol, you you don't like and and largely I think that matters less and less as time goes on. Yeah. Um, yeah. But if you can hear what they're you know, hear all the signals they're giving. That's uh -huh. one of the things I've done. I actually have an example of that. Don Slice and I were interviewing a guy for a TAC position at Cisco. And he, he went up on the whiteboard and he drew two hosts and a router line between them. And he said, all right, starting from power on, explain to me how host A talks to host B. And the guy just went off in the weeds. He had no idea what he was talking about. Completely, completely, utterly lost. Didn't hit ARP, didn't hit nothing. Just completely lost. But you know what? He did such a good job of explaining what he was trying to explain that we ended up hiring him and teaching him all that stuff because he told a good story and he was totally wrong. I mean, he was completely wrong, but nonetheless, he told a good story and he did a very good job of being convincing. And we figured, you know what? If he can try to convince two senior tech guys that this is the way it really works and he gets on a phone with a customer... <laughs> He's probably going to be okay. <laughs> I know one of my uh, favorite interview questions to ask is tell me a problem that you've solved that you're proud of. Yeah. And that really, I, I feel like, reveals a lot of things about a person. First of all, you can tell how much pride they take in their work if they if they sit there and, they, you know, or if, if they've got something in mind, they talk about it energetically with passion. And then you can pay attention, like, were there other people involved in this story? Or is it just this person is the hero of the story and that's all that's there? There's nobody else involved. And if you pay attention to those kinds of details, was it all, you know, me and I and I did it alone? Or can you see evidence that they worked with other people or that they went and found additional information? Or th there's just a lot you can learn 
and not so much the technical details of how they solve the problem. Like Tom was saying, I don't, that's not as interesting to me as how they tell the story, what really mattered to them and how they got from point A to point B. Yeah. And I feel like those kinds of questions are, are, are very revealing, but you have to, you have to look for questions that go beyond a surface level understanding and that really uncover, you know, people's, personality and also their their um just approach and and I found that one very helpful on their emotional intelligence is what I'm hearing in that too yeah yeah okay so let's return to the crystal ball (laughs) is this the future of work is the future of work of all work being more emotionally intelligent being more foundationally theoretical or is it with automation and stuff going to turn into even more rote work what do we think the future is going to be I don't know, Tom, I'm going to start with you. What do you think? I I think it will be self-assembling teams of people that come together to work on on something and are willing to work outside of what uh, any technology or um, area of expertise that they're completely comfortable in. I think um, the people that are that are willing to do that, I think we'll see will be it'll be very lucrative for them. Uh, And and, and that requires, um, you know, a, a number of emotional intelligence skills. But uh, but it also requires a lot of acute, a lot of mental acuity, which you know, hopefully, if you've if you've been working for a long time, you you have that um, and confidence that you can learn new things. I, I think that the 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 silo is going to come up pretty quickly against some big limitations. The systems are getting too complex for silos to solve these problems anymore. So that's that's my yeah. take on it. So Yvonne, what do you think? Yvonne and her yeah, followers. Yeah, I agree with. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree with with Tom quite a bit. I mean, I think there's going to be a divergence. I think there will always be a certain degree of of manual work that has to be done that will exist, and and that will continue to change over time as technology progresses. But I, but I think there will be that kind of work will still exist. It may be different, but I also think that uh, that there will be work that requires more emotional intelligence. I think. Uh, the pandemic has accelerated work being less tied to a place. Um, I think we will learn to use alternate methods of communication more. Um, and, and I do think it is going to become less and less about what specific things you know, but your ability to learn and to grow and progress and collaborate. Because I agree 100% that our systems are so complex that they can't be understood by, you know, a person that it will take a highly effective collaborative team to manage them. So Jacqueline, what do you see? Yeah, I agree with what's being said here. Um, and I'm excited about a future that really prioritizes emotional intelligence. And I think it's interesting that even our artificial intelligence is starting to adopt emotional intelligence. Um, so I think that is a, an, a very intriguing future um, when we are all being challenged this way. I agree with what Tom was saying that we're going to need to stay tapped in. Even if you do have this background, even if you have this experience, we're all going to need to be upping our game every step of the way um, because things are changing like they never have before. So again, that's incredibly exciting. It's also a big challenge for us. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think it is a big challenge, in fact, and I think that's something we need to learn to adapt to. And I'm not entirely certain how to get people to adapt to it or how to teach them to adapt to it, unfortunately. Part of it's just learned skills. It's just being in front of that audience a hundred times or being in front of that tack case a hundred times or whatever it happens to be. 
you know, just it is what it is and you just got to go practice it. And so, you know, go back to telling your own story, practice telling your own story. Even if nobody reads your blog, go blog. And <laughs> sorry, <laughs> this is a standing joke for like the Giving last two in years. early, I see. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, I mean, because if, even if nobody reads it, it's still practice telling your story. You know, it is, it's, it's doing something with yourself. So another thing I think that you brought up there, Jacqueline, was very interesting was tapping into the market movements. And used to be when I was a young kid, which is a long time ago now, (laughs) I uh, was always told to read the corporate stuff from the company I worked for. Like, you know, what, what's the company doing? Where are they making money? Where are they not? And I actually don't know how useful that is anymore. I really think you've got to get out in the market and understand the market and not just your company any longer. I think you've got to understand where the edges are in the market and where you can dive into things that are different. Um, would you, I mean, is that, cause that seems like what you've done. Is that something you would uh, agree with, bite into? Or yeah, I mean, what I, do you, I think it's a, think? both of that. You know, you have to know what a specific company is putting out there and then compare it to the market and the industry and maybe have an opinion about that. And so you have to get yourself educated in order to have that frame of reference. And I think it, it's still true that it's that it is homework and it does take a while in order to have enough of a knowledge base to be able to speak to that well. But once you can, it's amazing the conversations that you can get into if you've done that legwork. And that does go into what you were talking about creating a blog, even if no one reads it, at least you had that experience. And by the way, I think you should do stuff like you're saying, and then check in and make sure you're watching the metrics and then tweak it and get that feedback and learn from the experience. But I have a lot of people who contact me who have written, let's say two or three blogs and then stop because it wasn't what they thought it was going to be. Same thing that we're talking about with our research. If you research it for one or two days and expect for that to be life-changing, That's not what it looks like. It looks like doing this for a while, not seeing any results. And then later on down the line, it comes together with something else. And all of a sudden is a thing. That's what it looks like. But that's, that's a lot of work behind the scenes. And it's not a movie montage where you do it in a minute and you get to this point and wow, it's Eureka. Yeah. Yeah. I remember Garrison Keillor talking once about the Laura Ingalls series. And he says, you know, he was reading along in the book and they went out and there's one sentence that says they went out and picked peas all day long. And he says, see, farming's not hard. <laughs> 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 they went out and picked peas. It was one sentence. How hard is that? No, it's not quite like that. <laughs> it's a lot harder than that. Yeah. So, all right, Tom, anything else? I think we ought to wrap up. Well, I um, talking about picking the peas. Uh, of course, you would think it wasn't hard if you hadn't done it. But I think part of the point here is um, go go do that, and then you know what that sentence means. Yeah. And uh, yeah. and and just uh, one of the things I felt like I've had to accept is you have to you have to work for a long time in obscurity with no one even knowing what you're doing before it will matter for you or for anybody else. Yeah. And to me, that's really inspiring. I don't know. Maybe the way I said it is not a no 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 uh, inspiring way to say it, but no, but it does result in something. You just have to wait a while. Yeah. So Yvonne. Yeah, no, I think um, the only other question I have is, are there are there any resources you would recommend to people, good books to read or tools that they can consume? I know that for me personally, I've been uh, working my way through uh, the book, What Color Is Your Parachute? Which is really about figuring out who you are and what your skills are. It's a bit too late for you, Yvonne. It's too late. 
Uh, uh, Ouch. Never Ouch. too late. Never too late. Yeah. Um, but are there, are there any other resources that you would recommend to people or helpful books or, um, or things like that to uh, be more self-aware and to figure out where they fit in this crazy yeah, so I am constantly listening to leadership career development books on Audible. A lot of times instead of listening to, you know, I'll occasionally listen to Spotify, but a lot of times I'm tapping into a book just so I can stay tuned in. Um, also, I have my podcast series that I follow, again, for similar reasons. I mentioned before LinkedIn Learning and Masterclass courses, listening to Neil Gaiman, you know, these amazing writers talking about the craft. What a privilege it is to be in this time when I can take a full course from him. And so that was part of what I was doing with my pandemic here is using this time to really self better. So I think we have a lot more options than we ever did before. Cool. Awesome. Okay. Tom, where can people get in touch with you? I'm on Twitter, uh, Tom Ammon and LinkedIn. And no blog. And no blog. Not for my lack of trying for either Tom or Yvonne getting either of them to blog. So Yvonne, where can people get in touch with you and your flowers? I'm on Twitter at Sharp Network um, and then also on LinkedIn. And I have, believe it or not, done some writing oh. someday. It may see the light of day. I don't know. I don't know if it's just personal catharsis or if it will be shared with the public. But I have, I have re-engaged that habit. So we will see awesome. if something emerges that's soon. I hope so, public. Yvonne, because I love you. If writing. you do it, Yvonne, I'll do it. How about oh, that? there we go. <laughs> oh, he threw down the gauntlet. Uh, if you've never read Yvonne's writing, I love Yvonne's writing. Yvonne, you're an awesome writer. You need to get out there and do it. Tom, I've never seen his writing, so I have no idea what to say. <laughs> Just another poke there, Tom. Anyway, so Jacqueline, do you have a blog or anything else where people can follow what you're doing? Yeah, people can find me on LinkedIn, Jacqueline Adams, or connect with me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Jack's, J-A-C-K-S, Engineers. And then I have my IEEE blog. Um, Where is that? The IEEE blog. Yeah, if you if you Google, it's it's all Jacqueline girl. Adams IEEE. Okay, that's fine. But maybe that's if cool. you like Google I E E E dash U S A Adams is my last name, then that would okay. take you right. right to it. I have a weekly column, new blogs every Tuesday on career development and leadership development. And the ones that I've read, by the way, have been completely awesome. So mm-hmm. I would strongly recommend that our listeners follow that and uh, pay attention to it. All right, cool. Well, thanks for coming on The Hedge, Jacqueline. And uh, we'll try to get you back on sometime because this has been a fun conversation and we can always talk about career stuff. In between all of our deep technology, it's good to have some really good career conversations too. So thanks very much. And we'll catch you next time on The Hedge. Subscribe to The Hedge on your favorite podcast service or follow along at rule11.tech.